He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, our next reading will be from Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things had passed away. Well, thank you very much, Abby and Jacob, for reading to us. Um, and thank you, Christopher, for those great answers to questions. I must say, I'm loving this deal where I get to preach... And he answers the questions on the sermon. I think it's bound to backfire soon when he's preaching and I get to answer the questions on his sermon. But um, I'll still have access to his, his uh, knowledge and understanding in uh, preparing answers to those questions. But keep them coming. It's great to do that together and just think these things through. If you have a, a finger in Isaiah 53, I think that's where we will first be going in the Bible. But let's pray with... Uh, the scriptures open before us. And we thank you as we've already thought uh, this evening, Heavenly Father, that you're a God who reveals knowledge and wisdom to us. You've spoken in your word and feeble as our efforts are to understand your word and to uh, work out conclusions from it. We pray for your help. We pray that we would honor you as the one who reveals the truth and that the truth would do us and even other people good this evening. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the question we're thinking about this evening, as Aidan's already let on, is about suffering. And I suppose it's summed up by the conundrum, loving God, broken worlds. In other words, has God lost control? And you would need to shut your eyes to what happens in our world, not to ask that question, surely. We see lots of stories where suffering um, is uh, before our eyes um, and uh, on our minds all the time because of the, uh, the, the access that the media has to those situations. It wasn't always so. On the 1st of November, 1755... Lisbon was devastated by an earthquake. 
And because it was All Saints Day, the churches were packed at the time. And uh, 30 of them were destroyed. And within six minutes, I understand 15,000 people had died and 15,000 more lay dying. And that sort of information in the world at the time spread fast. It set the French philosopher Voltaire asking the question, how could anyone ever again believe in a benevolent and omnipotent God after that? Now, no doubt we can match, as I said, that episode of suffering with plenty from our own day. There are natural disasters. There are the war zones of our world. There are the forecasts of doom about our future predictions of catastrophic global warming. And we want to know, has God lost control? If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does suffering like that exist? Surely an all-powerful God could end the pain, and an all-loving God would want to do so. If he allows evil because he can't stop it, he might be good, but he obviously isn't powerful. On the other hand, if he allows evil because he just won't step in and stop it, he may be powerful, but he obviously isn't good. So that's the conundrum. That's the academic question. And I suppose maybe in our relatively comfortable environment, we're relatively well off. But still, suffering is not just a theoretical problem, even for us. It's not just something to be discussed in a Sunday sermon. For some of us here, it's a daily reality. And I think it's when we suffer personally that we really start to feel the force of these questions. So if I'm suffering stress with work or from illness or the loss of a loved one, then I start to ask, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow this? And, of course, that just magnifies the pain, if you think about it, because not only am I suffering, but at the same time, one possible comfort is apparently being withdrawn. For all I know, there may be some people here tonight who feel that they're going through the mill in just that way right now, undergoing suffering, and you long for an answer to the question, why? I think you'd be very wary of me or anyone else standing up and implying that we've got an explanation for human suffering and it's all sewn up. So I'm not going to stand up and tell you in a few minutes what the answer is. But I do want at the outset to tell you what the answer isn't. It will not solve the problem of pain or help me with my suffering simply to say there is no God. See, in one sense, the problem we're thinking about actually is only a problem for the person who believes in God. If there is no God, and our world is meaningless, it's nothing more than just a confused chance happening of atoms and molecules, then we've got to all expect to be knocked about, and there's no sense complaining about it. There's no supreme being for me to complain to in any case. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from jail in Birmingham, Alabama, dated April 1963. It's a famous letter. In it, he justified his behavior as a civil rights activist by saying that human laws must rest on a higher divine law. So the only way we can know if a human law is just, he argued, is if it derives from a higher divine law, from God. And it was interesting for me to reread that because... You don't often hear public policy being argued in that way anymore today. But he's right. If there's no God, somebody might say, well, that law's unjust. I don't like it. But 
That would simply be according to their standards. And why should their standards carry more weight than anybody else's? You take it a step further. If there's no God, say we abandon our belief in God, there's no divine law, how then can we say any historical event is unjust or evil? Those categories just don't fit. The thousands killed in Tiananmen Square are simply an example of natural selection, really. If nature is all there is, if there's nothing more than natural selection, then there's nothing more natural than violence, you could argue. You could even say it explains how you and I got here, how we happened to survive and others less fortunate than us didn't. It's just nature, red in tooth and claw, the strong eating the weak. And if there is no God, what's wrong with violence? It's perfectly natural. In a godless universe, what one animal does to another animal is irrelevant. Whatever is, just is. And that's all there is to it. Well, that's how the argument should go. And here, therefore, is how not to deal with the problem of suffering. It won't make it any easier to face suffering just to eliminate God. So I want to offer three pieces of the jigsaw from the Bible to give us some help. They aren't a complete answer. I want to acknowledge that. They aren't a complete answer to the problem. But they do give us, if you like, a framework to make some sense of it. Here's the first one. God created a perfect world. Now, I took a gamble that you didn't need me to have a reading for this point because the opening words of the Bible are well known to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there is a refrain that runs throughout that first chapter of the Bible. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Many times it comes up to the last verse of the chapter. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So that's the first piece of the jigsaw that the Bible offers us, and it's crucially important. See, when people ask how God could have created a mucked-up world like this, the Bible's answer is pretty simple. He didn't. He made a good world, in fact, a perfect world. And the Bible opens with a beautiful picture of humanity in a parkland paradise, living in harmony with each other, with their environment, and with their God. Now, I'm aware that that statement begs all sorts of questions, not least, how come our world is now so messed up? But the answer from the Bible is that in no way is God implicated in that. The Bible traces that fall instead to human disobedience against God. We've all rebelled against God, And because humanity was created as the landlord of God's world, with a sort of responsibility over it, when we turned away from God, that had results for our world as well. Of course, we know that in many instances of suffering, the finger of blame actually points directly at us. So, if it's pretty obvious, it's a situation like this, the suffering that falls on a family when their son is killed needlessly in a drunk driving accident as happens regularly enough, you ask the question, is God to blame for that? Answer, no. I know it isn't always this way, but so many episodes of human suffering have human wrongdoing directly as their cause. You ask Bob about 
earthquakes and the construction industry and the way people are exploited and buildings not put up to regulations. You could trace things back in that sort of situation often, not always, but often, to human wickedness and sin. But even where that isn't the case, the Bible insists that God made our world good. The word suffering would not exist if man had not shaken his fist in his creator's face. So not every episode of pain is the direct result of a specific evil act by men and women. The Bible argues that clearly. But all suffering ultimately can be traced back to humanity's initial disobedience and the pollution which flows from it. That's how the Bible would argue. Now, there's one other thing which I think it's important for me to say under this heading. The fact that God created a perfect world means that he really is in control of his world. He isn't under threat from the forces of evil. They will not get the upper hand on him. If he created everything then obviously he's in charge of everything, even of what goes wrong in our world, however hard we find it to understand that. Well, let's move on to the next piece in our jigsaw, and it's this. God entered our broken world. So first point is this. God created a perfect world. Second, God entered our broken world. See, it it would be a tragedy for anyone just because they can't explain the existence of evil, to lose sight of all the positive evidence we have for God's existence. That wouldn't be good theology, it's not even good science, to deny what we can know on the basis of something we don't know. If we let uncertainty about some areas rob us of any confidence we might have in other areas. Let me try and explain what I mean. Over the years, I've met lots of people, plenty of people, who, when they carefully looked at the evidence in the Gospels, concluded that the only explanation that fits with the facts is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's God himself. And if Jesus Christ is God, then his life, of course, sheds a huge amount of information on this topic of suffering. I love that description we had in the uh, reading from Isaiah. So it's written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The description of him which he fulfilled perfectly. We had it in that first reading. Uh, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. Man of suffering and familiar with pain in our translation here. And you see that so many times in Jesus i give you one example from Luke's Gospel. There's this widow. She's just buried her husband at some point in the past. Then had to walk behind her son's coffin as well to his burial. And Jesus bumps into the funeral procession. And we read in Luke chapter 7, Jesus' heart went out to her. Which is a lovely phrase, isn't it? He's not a remote, unfeeling deity. He's not unable to understand our pain, unwilling to do anything about it, content to watch us writhe in agony, as some people might say. Quote Dorothy Sayers, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. 
He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the lack of money to the worst, to the point where in the end he himself became vulnerable and subject to pain and death when Jesus died on the cross. So if there's someone who undergoes oppression as a political prisoner, well, God knows what that is like. He was the subject of unjust suffering. He was lynched that Passover weekend. If anyone's ever had the numbing agony of losing a loved one, well, again, how did the father feel when he gave up his one and only son on the cross? If somebody's just screaming out, why, why, in pain? Well, you realize, don't you, that was exactly the cry on Jesus' lips as he died. So he suffered everything that we've ever suffered, only he suffered more. One of you have noticed as you read the accounts of his life, how Jesus faced death apparently with more dread and difficulty than many others have done. I read a fascinating book about the uh, Puritans in 1649. Remember, Charles I was put to death by some of them. And when Charles's son became king a few years later, they faced executioner, execution themselves, the, the regicides, they were called, that had put King Charles I to death. And they faced execution, but it's a grim execution at that. They were disemboweled while they were still alive. They were shown their heart while it was still beating. Absolutely awful things done to them. And in that excruciating pain, they still showed courage and resolve as they faced death or the death of those around them. But when Jesus faced death, it says he, he swept great drops of blood. He prayed that some other way would be found. So a lot of people have faced physical suffering, apparently with less anxiety than Jesus. And you have to ask, Why? Well, it's because Jesus wasn't facing simply physical suffering. He was taking spiritual suffering instead of us. And that's what the verses in Isaiah 53 explain. Uh, Verse 5, for example. He was pierced for our transgressions. Over the page, he was crushed for our iniquities. And so on. In other words, he was taking the punishment that we deserve to take for our rebellion against God. And therefore, he was experiencing cosmic, infinite suffering so that we could be spared it. If we ask the question, God, why do you allow evil and suffering? Even if the cross doesn't give you the full answer to that, again, it it tells you what the answer isn't. It isn't that God doesn't care. He obviously cares because he, he plunged himself into our sufferings and actually way beyond our sufferings. And it's important for me to add to this that the way God entered into our broken world in history is matched by the way God still enters into our brokenness today. I guess I could ask a number of Christians here to tell us how even in times of excruciating pain, God has been with them. He isn't aloof. And maybe that's the experience right now of some Christian here today. He's entered into our broken world in the past 
but we know that by his spirit he still does so today. Well, one final piece of the jigsaw. God created a perfect world. God entered into our broken worlds. And a third one. God will restore our broken worlds to perfection. And we saw that in that wonderful vision of a restored creation in the future that uh, Jacob read from Revelation 21. So flip on right to the end of the Bible. And I might read verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 21 to you again. Somebody shout out a page number so I can get there ahead of you. One, two, four, nine. Thank you. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, if we read on, I think this is important for me to say this. The Bible is clear that not everyone will enjoy that future. So the very next verse is going to talk about people who continue to resist God in their lives, being shut out of that perfected world. But God delays that final separation, precisely so that many will avoid that fate. Um, That actually helps with one of the other questions people might have. Uh, Why God doesn't step into our world straight away now to eradicate all evil? If we ask God why he allows so much injustice to take place under his very nose, why not do something? I suppose God would be entitled, perfectly entitled to ask some questions back to us. How much justice do we really want? I mean, where should God draw the line? Should he punish bank robbers, but turn a blind eye to people who fiddle their expenses? Should he be ruthless with terrorists, but lenient with bullies? Because we'd all quite like him to let people with what we consider minor misdemeanors to be let off, especially if that includes us. Now, instead of judging everybody straight away, God postpones judgment so that people have time to accept his forgiveness and be part of the glorious future promised in Revelation 21. And you might be thinking, I suppose, as we look at it, it sounds too good to be true. It's a classic case of pie in the sky when you die. But let me just remind you how Christians can be confident of that future. I've already spoken about the death of Jesus, but We've affirmed it in the creed. Another central aspect of the Christian message is what we celebrate at Easter, the wonderful triumph of Jesus' resurrection beyond death. So three days after the cross, that body which had been mangled so brutally was gloriously brought back to life and transformed. And that event in history is what guarantees our confidence in the wonderful promise of Revelation 21. Jesus' resurrection shows there is a future beyond the grave to look forward to, free from suffering and with that unspeakable glory of God dwelling with us. And 
I hope your hearts are lifted just by thinking about that for a second. Won't it be great? No more hospitals, no more tearful goodbyes. Maybe some of us here, advancing in years, we have to go back a long way to remember somebody wiping our tears away or putting an arm around us. But actually, anybody who knows Jesus Christ doesn't have to look back into the past for those things. They can look forward to the future when God will wipe every tear from their eye. So then, we we may not have a complete explanation for suffering, but Christians can be confident about a complete end to it. And actually, an end to the pain is probably much more satisfying than an explanation, don't you think? Cyclists, imagine you're out cycling in town, you get knocked off your bike by a bus, and you're lying on the ground in agony, and some kindly medic approaches and kneels down beside you. Let me give you an explanation of your suffering, they say. See, the bus has driven over your femur, breaking it in two places, and the displaced bone is pressing against your femoral nerve, which is sending all sorts of neural messages through your lumbar plexus, up your spine, and into the pain receptors in your brain. It's giving you a sensation of excruciating agony. Does that help? Well, of course not. What if the person that comes to your help says this instead? Look, I don't know exactly how this has happened. I don't have all the explanations for your suffering. But the end is in sight. I'll get you to a hospital. And they can fix you up. So that leg has a chance of being even stronger than before. Now, that's the Christian hope that this present fallen world order won't go on unchanged forever. That God has fixed a day when evil will be eradicated completely and every trace of suffering will be eliminated. Let me just say as I close, if we're talking to people in this sort of situation with this question on their minds, it would be a tragedy for anyone not to accept the solution to their suffering just because at the moment they don't have a full explanation of suffering. In this life, you and I will never have a complete explanation. And it means we shouldn't put off accepting God's solution in the meantime. Because what we do know of God ought to be more than enough to help us face our unanswered questions. Has God lost control? Well, not the God of the Bible... As one suffering Christian testified, he is too righteous ever to do wrong, too loving ever to be unkind, too wise ever to make a mistake, and too powerful ever to be frustrated. Let's pray as we conclude and as we prepare for communion. We thank you, Heavenly Father, as we turn to communion now for the reminder of the Lord Jesus as one familiar with suffering, who was willing to die for our sin and bear its consequences in a way that we never need to if we trust in him.
And we pray that with our many questions, what he has done at the cross and what he has opened to us by his mighty resurrection would at least give us confidence to trust you where there are still questions that remain. Even tonight, we pray that you would feed us inwardly and deepen our trust and confidence in him. And we pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to lead us in a prayer we call the prayer of humble access. I suppose questions uh, can easily lead to fist-shaking in the face of God. And the Bible commends humility before him.